Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, for your Lord's Day, our day of rest, our day when we can come into your presence and worship you. Pray that you would be with us through your spirit in uh, the Sunday school hour where we would learn uh, of your grace in these old covenants where you have uh, made yourself known to your people. Uh, pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so uh, concerning sacrifices, this is going to be one of those means of grace uh, that is directly related to our catechism question, okay, question 34. <clears throat> when it comes to sacrifices, it's really going to boil down to one simple question, okay? How do you make the unclean clean, okay? Because the purpose of Israel is to draw near to God in worship at this point, right? But an unclean people cannot be in the presence of a clean or holy God, Right? So how do you do that? Well, one of the answers to that question is sacrifices. Okay? In the Old Testament, God instituted uh, three things to make Israel clean and, and bring them into worship. Okay? Number one was the Sabbath rest. Okay? This, of course, comes from the fourth commandment. God commands Israel one day in seven to gather together in worship uh, and worship him. They were to lay aside all other forms of work. Uh, and spend a whole day in rest and worship of the Lord. Again, we'll, we'll look at this more in detail when we get there on the fourth commandment. Um, that's a specific catechism question. Um, but it's these last two that I want to talk about the most. The first is general sacrifices. Okay? And there are three types, voluntary, required, and priestly sacrifices. Okay? The priestly sacrifices come from Leviticus 6, and they're under the command of the Lord. It's, it's really these first two that I want to focus on uh, the most. The, they're the sacrifices of the people, okay, the voluntary and the required. <clears throat> because really this is the whole reason that the people were brought out of Egypt in the first place, right? To be able to, to worship. So let's take a look at that first one, voluntary sacrifices. And there are three voluntary sacrifices. The first are burnt offerings. And they, that comes from Leviticus 1. There are several different reasons a person would sacrifice a burnt offering. It could be for thanksgiving, uh, atonement for unintentional sin, vows, self-dedication. Okay, the burnt sacrifice was uh, also one of the costliest sacrifices because uh, it burned up the entire animal, everything except for the skin. Uh, that was given to the priests who would try to, to sell the hide for money. Then he had the cereal or the grain offerings. That comes from Leviticus 2. The purpose uh, would be that the people would demonstrate their appreciation to God uh, for providing for them. But in Leviticus 2, 4, and 11, we read that these offerings had to be unleavened. Why unleavened? <clears throat> because it denotes the idea of purity. Okay? And Paul clarifies this for us a little bit. Uh, in Galatians 5, 9, he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Right? <clears throat> Israel was meant to understand that these uh, offerings... Um, with leaven, a little bit affects the whole person. And of course, that's personified in our sin as well. Peace offerings is the third one. That comes from Leviticus 3. Now, these were not uh, offered to make peace with God. Rather, they were made to express the peace and fellowship that Israel already shared with God. Generally speaking, uh, this ritual symbolizes a, a communion meal offering uh, affirming the covenant relationship between God and Israel. Okay. Uh, next, 
we move into the sacrifices required of Israel. Okay? Um, now, there's, there's two. <clears throat> First, you have your sin offerings. Uh, you get that from Leviticus 4 and 5. Uh, and as you might have guessed, these are uh, required. They're done because of sin. Uh, these sacrifices deal specifically with unintentional sin for the priests, the congregation, leaders, commoners. Okay? The point is that the, the moral law is valid for all people, anyone. Okay? Anyone can offer this type of sacrifice. Um, Scripture is very clear, right? All sin is offensive uh, and sin against God. Uh, whether you mean it or not, it's sin. The last one is the guilt offerings, Leviticus 5. Uh, this sacrifice is made to deal with defiling something that belongs to the Lord. Okay? Um, an example of that would be like a food item or the Lord's name. Okay? An Israelite would bring this offering even if they suspected of committing the offense. <clears throat> but here's the thing about all these sacrifices. Okay? They all point to the need for a better sacrifice, right? For a sacrifice that doesn't need to keep being made. They point to Christ and his substitutionary atonement and the perfection of his sacrifice. See, in all these sacrifices, Israel had to provide animals that were, quote, without blemish, right? In other words, perfection was required because the whole point is to draw our attention to the spotless lamb of God. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What Israel needs is the one who will come as the perfect sacrifice for God's people. The Messiah who will willingly spill his blood that they may at last be made permanently clean. Okay? That they can come into his presence at any time. Okay. Very good. Now, these are the general sacrifices mentioned in Leviticus, but there's, there's one more that we need to make mention of, and that's the Day of Atonement. <clears throat> hey, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, uh, comes from Leviticus 16, and it is, in a lot of respects, kind of the heart of the Pentateuch, uh, because its purpose is to give Israel access to the living God. Okay? It was the one day a year where the high priest would enter the holiest of holies, Okay, and make a sacrifice to atone for the people's sins, for, for all their sins. Um, all the other purification rituals really hinged on this ceremony. <clears throat> this was an extremely big deal with a lot of moving parts. Uh, now, Aaron, he's the first up to bat on this one. Uh, you want to talk about game day pressure, okay? This is it. Uh, he had to go behind the veil he had to put on the holy priestly robes. Uh, he had to make atonement for himself first. Why? Because he too was sinful. Then he had to make atonement for his house. Okay? So there's, there's stages to getting clean and, and going into this place. Okay? <clears throat> Only then could he make atonement for the people. There's ritualistic washing involved. There's a whole lot that goes into this. Okay? In fact, the priest would wear bells on their robes, so the people could hear them moving, because if they screwed up in there, they would die, okay? You, you think I'm crazy. Listen to uh, Exodus 28. This comes from verses 33 through 35. This is God's command of, of how the priestly garments should be adorned, okay? 
On its hem, you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them, a golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. Three times God says, put bells on there. Okay, because approaching God carelessly leads to death. Let me say that one more time. Approaching God carelessly leads to death. And I would argue, by the way, that's a good general principle for everyone, not just the high priests. Okay, every aspect of this tabernacle service is meant to be intentional, right? To teach Israel that the Lord is holy. Hey, now, here's our big takeaway from the Day of Atonement. Unlike Aaron, Jesus is a better mediator because he doesn't need to make atonement for himself, right? Through Christ, we have better access to God. This is Hebrews 8, verse 6. For Jesus has a, obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. With Christ's crucifixion, the veil was torn in two, and man now has full access to the living God. Jesus is the one who was made unclean, that we would be made clean. He was the one who was sent outside the camp to suffer on our behalf. We can now confidently go before the throne of God every minute of every day. We can have confidence through Christ because he was the once for all sacrifice, the one who makes all things new. You see, we underestimate the effects of sin. We really do. And how unclean we are apart from Christ. Even things that aren't our fault, right? Take, for example, now, this might be difficult to hear, but this is scripture, so <clears throat> I stand upon this, right? Take, for example, a, a woman's menstrual cycle, right? We read about that in scripture, right? It's not her fault. She can't control it. Yet Leviticus 16 tells us that makes her unclean. What do we do with that kind of thing when we read about that in scripture? That's hard. The point is to show us how bad the fall is. How bad our sin is. And how wonderful the redemption in Christ is. He has become unclean that we would be made clean. We underestimate how bad our sin is and how wonderful the redemption in Christ is. Very good. Now, one last thing regarding sacrifices. <clears throat> Here's a question for you. Do we make sacrifices today? Do we? There it is. Yes, we do. <clears throat> but if the answer is yes, what does it look like? Should I have been bringing a goat to worship every Lord's Day? I'm forgetting that. No. Right, well, if that's not it, what is it? Okay. Leviticus is all about holiness. Okay. When you think of the theme of Leviticus, you should be thinking holiness. 
Okay? Leviticus teaches us that God's people should look different from the world. But that looks different for us this side of the cross. Okay? According to 1 Peter 2.5, we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the key word there right, is spiritual. Our sacrifices are not animal or grain or cereal or anything like that. Right? For God says in Isaiah 1.11, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Right? Rather, as always, the Lord is concerned about the heart. So what are these modern sacrifices that we make? What are they? What do they look like? Now keep in mind, while the literal offerings of the Old Testament ceremonial law has been, quote, abrogated under the New Testament, to use the language of the confession, the principle behind them of costly devotion remains. Okay? And the other thing we need to always remember is that we sacrifice because we need it. God does not need it. We do. Okay? He gives us these things for our benefit. Okay, now let's take a look at these. And, and these are in no special order, but uh, I would argue that there's five examples of these new covenant uh, sacrifices that we see. The first of which is giving. Philippians 4, verse 18 says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So the Greek here for fragrant offering is osimen iodius, and it occurs often in the Septuagint, okay, in connection with the pleasing aroma or sacrifices acceptable to God. So the idea here is that Paul is well supplied by the Philippians, right? Their gift in the service of the gospel. As a result, he's able to make the connection and draw on that Old Testament imagery, right? He's saying, like Israel, your giving is a pleasing sacrifice, a pleasing aroma done in faith. Second, second one is praise. The author of Hebrews says in uh, Hebrews 13, verses 15 through 16, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Uh-oh. This says we got to... Praise God, we better start getting the praise and worship band together. No, no, not even a little bit, right? Okay, rather, this sacrifice um, of praise is a concept found repeatedly in the Psalms. It's the, it's the verbal praise, the verbal proclamation of God's name. Okay, and the author ends with, do good and share what you have. Okay, this too is a sacrifice pleasing to God. Wait. Kids, you mean your parents haven't been making these rules up as they go along? You mean you, you not only got to do good, but you got to share too? Yeah, that's actually a sacrifice pleasing to God. Wow, these waters run deep. Okay, you see kids and adults too, <clears throat> when we realize these things actually bring joy to God, okay, it should motivate us to find joy in the process of doing these things as well. Okay, 
Number three, prayer. Now, this comes from Revelation 5, 8. Uh, but I'm going to back up to verse 6 for a little bit of context here. But pay careful attention to verse 8. <clears throat> and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And here's verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are prayers of the saints. Now, yes, I am fully aware that the words offering or sacrifice are nowhere in that text. But what, what do we see? What do we get a picture of here? We have the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders doing what? Falling down before the Lamb. They are prostrating themselves in worship before Jesus Christ. And in one of their hands is a bowl of incense. One might call it a pleasing aroma to the Lord, right? It's an offering. It's an offering, okay? And what is that offering? Well, we're told it's the prayers of the saints, okay? This shows us that the prayers of the saints are presented to Jesus like incense, Okay? The smell of a, of a beautiful offering. Right? And the pleas of God's people will be heard and answered in accord with God's providential timing and judgment. Christian, your prayers are a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. He delights to hear them, and He loves to answer them in accordance with His timing. All I know is those better be some pretty big bowls, because I, I pray a lot. All right, lastly, uh, is this the last one? Uh, oh, no, sorry, this is number four. Evangelism. Romans 15, verses 16, uh, 15 and 16, sorry. Paul says, But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, if your first thought is, well, yeah, but that, that just applies to Paul because his ministry was specifically to the Gentiles. Well, okay, in one sense that's true, but as we discussed, right, when we looked at Abraham and Moses, right, we all share in that royal priesthood, right? Like Abraham, we are responsible to be a blessing to the nations. We are all required to share the gospel, the good news of Christ, Right, And we learn through Paul's example that those we help save others by sharing God's word. It's an acceptable offering to God. Okay, so go do it. Win people to Christ. Go plant churches, right? Let's follow Paul. Bring Gentiles to Christ. Okay? Last one is service even unto death. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So because of the Lord's saving grace, we are to give ourselves wholly over to Him. And that's what bodies means here, our, our whole person, body and soul. 
They both belong to God and both should be a living sacrifices, uh, sacrifice. Now, that means two things. Both body and soul have been uh, resurrected. They enjoy new life in Christ. But secondly, neither will taste death like the Old Testament animal sacrifices. Right? Rather, both body and soul experience eternal life. And there may be a time when God calls us to lay down that life. John 15, verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. But those who die in faith have already been raised with Christ, seated in the heavenly places. But even on a, a broader scale, we see that we belong to God wholly, completely, Therefore, our spiritual worship encompasses everything that we do, right? And those made new in Christ, our, our, um, our spiritual worship now includes um, offerings one, one's whole life over to God. Everything we do is in His name, for His glory, for His praise, for the advancement of His kingdom. All in service to the king. So let your whole life be a pleasing offering unto God. So that concludes the Mosaic Covenant. Does anybody have any questions on that before we jump over into the Davidic Covenant? All right, very good. So at long last, we get to the Davidic Covenant, the last in the line of Old Testament covenants. When uh, speaking of this covenant, uh, Robertson says in his book, uh, God's purpose to redeem a people to himself reaches its climax here, at least in the point of concerning the Old Testament, right? And he's absolutely right. Under David, the kingdom arrives and the Lord establishes how he will rule among the people. Now, there is indeed a, a new covenant coming, we know that, and the prophets will speak to this, uh, but it's, it's not yet realized, right? At this moment for Israel, the Davidic covenant is here, it's, it's already, right? Now, before we discuss the covenant proper, I want to revisit another topic that we've discussed before, that being republication. You'll remember we spoke about republication in previous weeks regarding the Mosaic covenant, Right, Republication is generally the argument that the principle of works from the covenant of works uh, is reapplied or reestablished in the Mosaic Covenant. The idea is that Israel's blessing in the land is conditional upon their keeping of the law. Well, we, of course, argue that that's not the case. The Mosaic Covenant is all of grace. Right? Now, I know you're probably thinking, yeah, I got that. We already talked about that. Let's, let's move on. Um, why are we bringing this up again? Because I want to point out another inconsistency in this argument um, that proponents will make when they get to the Davidic covenant. Okay? <clears throat> They're going to say that Abraham was of grace. The Mosaic covenant was of grace, at least at its core, but you still got works, right? Then when you get to the Davidic covenant, it goes back to grace. So essentially what you have is grace, works, grace. You see this illogical flow here? Okay. They'll say the Davidic covenant draws from the Abrahamic covenant while 
basically circumventing the Mosaic Covenant? No. No, 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 no. Okay, this is not the case, and I'll, I'll teach you why in detail along the way, but what we have is grace from the beginning to the end. Okay, from Genesis 3.15 to the New Covenant inauguration all the way to this moment in redemptive history, it's all of grace. It's always been of grace. Okay, and here's just a couple pretty big examples of why that's, that's true. <clears throat> here's why you can't just skip the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, when a king is installed in Israel, what's required of him? What does he have to do? He's got to keep the Mosaic law, right? In fact, he has to write it down. Listen to Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So a godly king was to be a, a good student of God's law, right? An enforcer of God's law. The king had to write his own personal transcription of the Torah. And it had to be approved by the Levitical priests, Man, that's a hard test to pass, right? This, this demonstrates covenantal continuity, again, between the Davidic and the Mosaic Covenant. There's, there's really no talking around this. Here's another good example, right? The necessity of a mediator, or, or really the theme of a mediator. As the king, David typologically functions as the mediator between God and the people. This theme most resonates with the Abrahamic, I'm sorry, not with the Abrahamic covenant, but with the Mosaic covenant. And we looked at this before, right? How Moses functions as a type of Christ in how he intercedes for the people. Well, David does the same thing, and he gets, and he gets this pictured wonderfully for him, not through Abraham, but through Moses. Now, why do I keep bringing this up? Why do I keep making such a big deal about republication. Is this a hill that you need to die on? Maybe, maybe not. I'll leave that up to you, but my lectures should give you a pretty good idea where I stand on this, okay, and why I think it's such a big deal, but you need to understand that this is not a minor issue, okay? This affects how we understand the whole of Scripture, okay? Big picture, right? The Bible is broken down, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, so the only thing man contributes to in that big picture there is the fall, <laughs> okay? Everything else is of God's grace and his love to call a people to himself. And when we look at the redemption aspect of that big picture, this is where covenant theology really comes front and center. Again, these covenants build upon each other and expand upon each other. They're, they're all connected. They give us a, a much broader picture of, of who God is, how he intends to redeem his people, how we as fallen man relate to a holy God. And at no point is it conditioned upon our works. Was, was the fall not a good enough example of that? Right? It's always of grace. Okay. 
I'm off my republication soapbox. <clears throat> Let's take a look at the Davidic covenant. Now, the Davidic covenant occurs in 2 Samuel 7. But before we get there, I think we need to set the stage with some things. Uh, the first of which is God's selection of David. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. There's a couple of places in your Bibles you can go to to look at um, God's selection of David. But this, uh, this was a, a nice little different place. This speaks to the selection of David as king. <clears throat> Starting in verse 67. Psalm 78, beginning in verse 67. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with skillful hand. So... God installs a king, and he selects a man from the tribe of Judah. That's interesting because the text is careful to note God didn't choose from the tribe of Ephraim, which, as a descendant of Joseph, might have made someone a more likely candidate, right? But he chose David, which Genesis 4.10 actually foretells, right? The scepter, this is Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. God also chose Mount Zion, Jerusalem, right, <clears throat> to not only be the capital, but the location of his temple sanctuary. The man and the location are important for godly rule in Israel, and both are essential for Israel's present and their future as it relates to the new covenant and Christ. We'll look at that uh, in greater detail shortly, but what's important at this point is David is appointed king, and Jerusalem is the capital city. Okay. Now, looking back at verse 70, we see David was taken, quote, from the sheepfold. Like Moses, he was an actual shepherd. He tended physical sheep. And the symbology here is important. Just as David was a shepherd to his flock, he will now tend to God's people as king. And these are a stiff-necked people, a people who are often referred to as sheep. They are lost and wandering. They will need a strong shepherd, a strong leader to guide them. He will protect them, and he will lead them in faithfulness of the covenant. Now, while it is true David had his moral failures, we know this, verse 72 tells us that at his best, right, at his best, David leads Israel with an upright heart and a skillful hand. Unlike many kings that would come after him, David was a good king. David was a very good king. Okay? And this is why God ascribes the term shepherd to David. Okay? The term shepherd, this term was, was often used of many leaders um, priests, noblemen, judges, but they weren't always good. 
In fact, in Ezekiel 34, the prophet there, he speaks against the unfaithful and the greedy shepherds of his time. Um, you can turn there if you'd like. Uh, we're going to be looking at a few passages. <clears throat> These shepherds were only tending to and feeding themselves. They weren't caring for the sheep. Even those that had gone astray, right? The ones that probably needed it the most. So there, in Ezekiel 34, this is verse 10. God says, against the wicked shepherds, he says, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. So God looks at the false shepherds and he says, I'm against you. What has happened to these sheep is your responsibility. It's your fault. And I will make you pay for it. No longer will you just be feeding yourselves. Now step aside. I will take care of my sheep. In fact, Ezekiel looked forward to the time after exile when God would raise up, quote, his servant David. Listen to Ezekiel 34. This is verses 22, uh, 23 and 24. And by the way, part of our catechism question focuses on prophecies, right? Here's an excellent example of one. God says, verses, verse 23, And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. So, there will come a day when God's servant David, the Messiah, will shepherd the people. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd twice in John chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. In these statements, Jesus claims to be the long-awaited heir of David. He is the shepherd prophesied that would lead the people perfectly. Yes, David was good, but he was not perfect. And Jesus is, of course, sharply contrasted against the false shepherds who only feed themselves. Jesus is the one who looks at the false shepherds and says, you will be judged for your failure. Now move while I care for my sheep. Now, we're in the middle of elections for elders and deacons in our church. For those of you considering office, this passage at the beginning of Ezekiel should give you pause. The role of elder is nothing to be taken lightly. Make no mistake, heritage needs godly men who are ready to step up, okay? Tend to the sheep. We need it. But not themselves. <clears throat> and the Lord will hold elder, elders accountable when they seek their own glory and their own gain, okay? Over caring for God's people. And believers, I say this with all sincerity, pray for your elders, okay? Pray for your elders and your deacons. We covet your prayers. We need it. Being an officer in the church is very hard work, and we need your prayers. 
James 5.16 says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We believe that. We're merely under shepherds to the good shepherd of Jesus Christ. We take passages like Ezekiel 34 very seriously. For in him we all find our strength and salvation. Now, very good. Before we look at the finer details of this covenant, let me just say this um, up front. 2 Samuel 7, this portion of the Davidic covenant, is, is a very significant uh, moment in redemptive history. Uh, this is arguably probably ranks top 10 biggest moments in Scripture. Why? Because the New Testament writers realized its importance in understanding the kingship of Jesus. The establishment of the house of David is critical in God's plan to crush the head of the serpent. But to get to this point in 2 Samuel, before, before we can even start talking about the covenant of David, we need to remember a couple of few really important things that I think a lot of people tend to skip over, or at least forget. <clears throat> so I want to go over the, hasn't it been true of every covenant up to this point that we've seen this pattern of trial, restoration, and then covenant inauguration, right? Noah, you got the flood, no problem, ark, covenant, right? Abraham, old, barren wife, no problem, divine intervention, covenant, right? Moses, Israel's in captivity, no problem. Plagues, safe passages to Sinai, covenant, right? Well, we're going to see that again with David, okay? Through his sovereignty and love for his people, God providentially overcomes every obstacle to bring about his will and perfect plan of redemption. So let's look at these events. These events we're going to look at really establish the historical backdrop for the Davidic monarchy, the shepherd king that we just read about in Psalm 78. And they're necessary precursors to lead us into the covenant itself. So 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16 anoints David to be king. But years go by before that actually happens, right? Years go by. There's a lot of history between David being anointed king and actually taking the throne. So the first thing that we need to remember is that the ongoing war between David and Saul is finally over. David doesn't actually become king until 2 Samuel 5. Anointed in 1 Samuel 16 doesn't actually become king until 2 Samuel 5. That's a long time. If you have your Bibles, please flip there. Uh, 2 Samuel 5. Turn to 2 Samuel 5. Starting in verse 3. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So this is significant because the people are finally recognizing David as their king as their monarch, even though he was anointed by Samuel years ago. So when we get to 2 Samuel 7, and we look at verses 8 through 17, which is where the, the covenant actually happens, right? That portion of Scripture will serve as both the inauguration of the Davidic covenant and the coronation ceremony of the king. 
That's important. Because God will not make his covenant with anyone but the rightful king of Israel. We also see in verse 12 of 2 Samuel 5 there, and David knew that the Lord, he knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. So again, we see here that the war between David and Saul, it wasn't just a civil war. This was also a holy war for the throne. David knew the Lord had established him king over Israel. Civil wars are bad enough, right? Just, just go look at the death totals of the last one that we had in this country. But now you've got two sides who both thinking, or both thinking that they're fighting on God's side. Both David and Saul believes their right to rule is divine, as, as biblical. It makes sense that this view took a long time to, to resolve, right? And as if this wasn't bad enough, now David is ruling a people who, in part, still see his authority as, uh, their, their authority to Saul as legitimate or biblical. Because some of those people were still Saul's, right? And now David is in, is in charge of this whole kingdom. And we see multiple examples in Scripture of attempts to usurp David. And, just to add to this even more, because this isn't enough, right? Back in chapter 3, David's general, so you got David's general, Joab, right? He kills Saul's general, Abner. Abner went at peace, but Joab gets jealous because he thinks, oh, well, if Saul's general comes over here and tries to get peace, then David's going to make him his right-hand man, and I'm going to be out of the picture. So he kills him. That was chapter 3. There is no way David should be king by chapter 5 apart from God's providence. So when David says he knew the Lord made him king, he really did. It wasn't just a false humility. This would not have happened apart from God. Here's the second thing we need to keep in mind. David captures the Jebusites in Jerusalem and makes it the capital. This is verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. So the, the Jebusites drastically underestimate David, right? So much so that they said, we could have... The, the blind and the crippled be centuries on our borders and you still couldn't get in here and take us over, right? That's how weak you are. No way you're getting in here. Verse 8, David wins, right? One big reason for overtaking Jerusalem and making it the capital city is because David is seeking to unite the tribes, right? Remember, David uh, originally ruled in the south at Hebron. Hebron and, and Benjamin are down there. Right, but Jerusalem is central. This gives him access to the northern tribes. Oh, and it also gives them access to their king. So this, this would also open up trade routes. So practically speaking, this is a very wise move from the king. But Jerusalem is critical from a messianic perspective as well. Right? We're told in Zechariah 9.9 that the true king, the Messiah, would come into Jerusalem mounted on a donkey. 
And that's exactly what Jesus does in the beginning of Matthew 21. Now, how many more of these do I have? Let's see where I get low on time here. Okay, yeah. Last one, and then we'll, we'll call it a day. <clears throat> in chapter 6, this is our last thing that we need to remember. Chapter 6, David brings the ark back to Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 6, verse 17. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. <clears throat> so this tells all the tribes that Jerusalem is not only to be the political capital of a united Israel, but it's also the religious center. Okay? Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was not just an arbitrary symbol of God's presence. Rather, God himself manifested his presence there in a very special way. Uh, wherever the Ark was present, God was there. 1 Samuel 4, 4 tells us, The Lord of hosts is enthroned on the cherubim. Okay? This is why the priests were so afraid to enter the holiest of holy places, right? In the temple, the ark was there. And consequently, God himself was there. Okay? So bringing the ark to Jerusalem says with, with, very, with great boldness, right? God is here, and he, he affirms this work. Now, listen carefully. Don't miss this. This is the important part of this. <clears throat> The ark emphasizes the close connection between the Davidic kingship and the rule of God. So where the ark was, that was meant to signify that God was reigning. But now the ark is brought to the place where David is reigning. So the rule of God and the rule of David are brought together. This is an incredibly important aspect of the Davidic covenant. By bringing the ark to Jerusalem like this, we have pictured the king of Israel ruling under the direct command of God. <clears throat> I lied, there's one more. <laughs> Lastly, 2 Samuel 7 verse 1 says, Now when the king lived in his house, the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So God grants David's kingdom peace and security, right? The Philistine threat is over. The threat from Saul is over. David has taken Jerusalem. The ark is there. And David has a 360-degree divine security plan established, right? There's peace in the kingdom. At last, everything is as it should be to bring about the covenant with a, a uh, godly king. So, that sets us up nicely to move into uh, the Davidic covenant next week. Does anybody have any questions at this point? Bueller? No. Okay, good. All right. <clears throat> Let me pray for us, and we'll close out. <clears throat> Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are most sovereign, most powerful and wise. We see that displayed here, <clears throat> even in your, your covenants of old. We thank you, Lord that you have uh, made us a people through your Son, Jesus Christ, that can approach you. We can offer our prayers and worship to you. We thank you that you have set out a day in our weeks where we can rest and offer a whole day in worship to you. You are good and kind to us. We thank you for your love toward us, Lord, that you have called us to be a people to yourself.
We pray that you would be with us in our fellowship, in our worship of you today, that it would be pleasing in your sight. Please be with our pastor. We lift him up to you, Lord, that you would bless him and encourage him through your spirit as he boldly proclaims your word this morning to us, Lord. May our hearts be receptive to that word. I pray all these things in Jesus' name.